We're going to stay right there for the most part in Titus 2. I hope you'll join us there. Appreciate Randall's reading it for us a bit ago. Titus 2, one of the letters Paul wrote to uh, one of the young preachers he had mentored, was mentoring, as they worked with different churches. Titus was working with a church on the island of Crete, and he needed some help in dealing with some things he was dealing with. And uh, Paul writes this letter to him. Now, I want to read you something here. Welcome, by the way. I already greeted you earlier, but I am glad that you're here. Glad we get to study together. I want to read you a couple paragraphs from the beginning of an article written by Maria Konnikova. This was published in the New Yorker a few years back about a fellow by the name of Walter Michel. You may have heard, before I start reading, you may have heard of the famous, pretty famous marshmallow test about self-control, delayed gratification done about 50 or so years ago. It's been... uh, stimulated a lot of research over the years. I'll tell you more about it in just a second. But uh, this is how the article begins by Mrs. Uh, Konnikova. She says, Walter Michel had a terrible time quitting smoking. He had started young, and even as his acumen and self-knowledge grew, he just couldn't stop. His habit continued through his years as a graduate student at Ohio State and into the beginning of his teaching career as a psychologist at Harvard and then at Stanford in the 1950s and 60s. I was a a three-packs-a-day smoker, supplemented by a pipe, Michelle told me recently. And when the pipe ran out, it was supplemented by a cigar. After the first Surgeon General's report on the dangers of tobacco came out in 1964, Michelle realized that his smoking could very well kill him. And yet his attempts to quit failed spectacularly. He had stopped, and then, like so many people who try to break the habit, he'd start again. He justified his continued puffing as part of his professorial image. Michelle's story, she goes on to write, isn't surprising. Nicotine is addictive and quitting is difficult, except for one thing. Michelle is the creator of the famous marshmallow test, one of the most famous experiments in the history of psychology, which is often cited as evidence of the importance of self-control. In the original test, which was administered at the Bing Nursery School at Stanford in the 1960s, Michelle's team would present a child with a treat, Marshmallows were just one option. And tell the child that she could either eat the one treat immediately. Now listen to, to this, this test, how it worked, all right? Tell the child that she could either eat the one treat immediately or wait alone in the room for several minutes until the researcher returned, at which point she could have two treats. All right, these kids were, the original study was done with five-year-olds, Okay. The promised treats were always visible, and the child knew that all she had to do to stop the agonizing wait was ring a bell to call the experimenter back, although in that case she wouldn't get the second treat, though she would get the first. The longer a child delayed gratification, Michelle found, that is, the longer she was able to wait, the better she would fare later in life at numerous measures of what we now call executive function. She would perform better academically, earn more money, and be healthier and happier. She would also be more likely to avoid a number of negative outcomes, including jail time, obesity, and drug use. This is a pretty good article. It goes on. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but it goes on to talk about how Michelle you know, took this study, learned from it about delayed gratification, self-control, used it all over the world. It goes on to say, and I'll refer back to this a bit later, that it wasn't until um, several years later, even though Michelle was involved in all the self-control studies, psychological studies, he still couldn't kick, the, kick the, uh, the smoking habit until there was a day when he was 
I think he was at Stanford at the time. And he saw in the medical school there, he saw uh, someone who was a longtime smoker who had lung cancer and he was going through chemotherapy and he saw a radiation and he, and he saw the man suffering. And it created this mental image that he used for the rest of his life, kicked the habit of smoking and, uh, and went on to, he, he, uh, at, at the time of this writing at least, he was 84 years old. Now, I want to talk about that study just for a second. If you're, if you're keeping count, uh, last Sunday I also used a psychological study. So I'm two for two these two weeks, all right? Just so you're aware of that. Um, the marshmallow test, five-year-olds. I don't know if you're like me, but I immediately put myself in that chair as a five-year-old. And he didn't just use marshmallows. I think I would have been able to resist marshmallows. You know, if you put a, a plate of nacho fries from Taco Bell, though, or a steak taco from the taco truck down the hill, if you put that and he said, you can have it now, or at some unspecified point in the future, you can have two, two, two orders of nacho fries, uh, or whatever it is, what, what, put, put something on that plate that tempts you. It may not be nacho fries, it may not be a marshmallow, it may be something different. And I think that's, that's it's pretty fascinating, you know, and it's, it's shown, this has spawned all sorts of things over the last 50 years, all sorts of studies in this idea of, self, of, 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 of delayed gratification, of, um, of, of self-control and all that. One of the things that's interesting about this, though, and, and you parents, you're thinking, you're probably thinking about your child, your you know, if you've got a five-year-old, if you've got a, a child, how would he or she do? Because it's interesting how this study went on for about, for, for decades. He followed these kids on into their 50s and 60s. That's how he was able to, to chart their life course and, and, and do all sorts of things with, you know, success and, and how much money they made and, and if they kept their weight down and, and how they scored in the SAT and all this sorts of things, and the kids who were able to resist and get the two treats, you know, for the rest of their lives, they did better. Now, that can be kind of interesting, can be kind of discouraging if you think, well, that's just something that they're born with or not, that if you have it, you've got it, if you don't, you don't, there's nothing you can do about it. But one of the implications, one of the conclusions of this series of studies was this, self-control is something that can be developed. As a Christian, I'm thankful to know that when I read passages like the one in Titus 2, that God has called us to live self-controlled life, that's not just something that's strictly genetic, that you're either born with it or not, but that God has called us to live a different kind of life, self-control. Now, I'm guessing, as I said a few minutes ago, you guys, uh, you guys already want this. You know, you, we're, we're in this se section of our study and reading this year where we're thinking about Christian character and how that God has called us to live different kinds of life. We've talked about things like love and forgiveness and kindness. Today we're going to talk about, obviously, self-control. That God, God wants us to live different lives, you know. He wants us, the grace of God ought to do something in us. It's not just, it's not just something that we receive, but rather God calls us to live a self-controlled kind of life. And that text in Titus 2 is an important one. We've already read it this morning. I want to key in on just a couple of things when he says, this is the section here in Titus 2, the whole chapter, is about what God has, has asked us to do. He talks about the older men. He talks about the older, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. And then when you get to verse 11, he says, The grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, self-control, you already know this, I'm guessing, but self-control is a very important part of Christianity, you know? It's all over the place. Let me give you a sample of this. Paul particularly emphasizes it in these letters that he wrote to young preachers and the kind of preaching that they ought to do. But he says this in 2 Timothy 1.7. He said, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In Titus 2.6, earlier in this chapter we're studying, likewise urged the younger men. Why does he key in on younger men there? He talks about older men, older women, younger men, younger women. In the section to younger men, he says, urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Peter himself, in both of his letters, writes about it. 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In his second letter, chapter 1, verse 6, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with, here it is, self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and so on. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is the climactic aspect of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, building up to self-control. It's almost like he's emphasizing it, putting it at the, at the very end, the climactic position in the list. Uh, Paul, in his writings, he, he says, Elders, shepherds of the flock, need to be characterized by self-control. 1 Peter 3, 2. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Titus 1, 8. They are to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So, I mean, we can go on and on. Two more, quickly. The summation of the gospel in Acts 24, 25 this is how Paul sums up how this idea of the gospel and a Christian worldview is characterized by righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. One more, Proverbs 25, 28. It likens a man without self-control to a city broken into and left without walls. So it's completely exposed. So you probably didn't need that part. But just in case, I want to make sure we're on the same page here as we begin. You need, I need, we need self-control in the lives of in the lives that we live before God. Now, self-reflection here, let me ask you a couple questions. I started earlier by talking about this at the beginning of worship. Do you, don't answer this out loud. Do you need more self-control? Number two, bracketing off stuff like a slice of cheesecake after dinner or binging on Netflix these are habits we probably ought to think about. But bracketing those off for now, the second question is, what aspect of your Christian walk needs to be characterized more by self-control? And by Christian walk, I'm talking about something that you practice that you ought not, or something you know you ought to be doing, but because of a lack of self-discipline, you don't. So number one, do you need more self-control. I know the answer to that one already. Yes. I don't know the answer for you for number two, but I hope that you 
are engaging in a time of self-reflection so that you might make this a kind of personal thing for you. Now, I'm not so naive or so confident that I think over the next few minutes, through a short study of God's Word, that we can fix everybody's problems of self-control. I know that's not the case. What I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to try to sow some seeds from Scripture, from God's Spirit in your heart that might, and I believe will, in conjunction with a prayer life that's focused on God, will bear fruit in that God will bring about greater levels of self-control in those areas that you need it. I know that He will. I know that He will. If we pursue it, within the parameters that we're going to study from Titus 2. So it matters. It matters. The second thing here, I'm, not, I'm going to come back to this, but I, I just want, to, I want you to notice these words here, these imperatives in Titus 2. The grace of God, verse 11, has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Two uh, implied imperatives here, training us, number one, to renounce. So, so in, our, in our walks with Christ, we renounce certain things. We say, that's not going to be me. That is not who I'm going to be because I have experienced the grace of God. So I'm renouncing that, and I am, here's a positive one. So a renounce is kind of a negative idea. So I renounce that, and I live like this. So I renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and I live, three things, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So I renounce, that's, that's a good description of Christianity as far as how we ought to live. There are certain things we say no to, and then we say, we don't just say no. Christianity is not a religion of no's, though we renounce certain things, but we embrace a different kind of living. So we'll come back to that renounce and live here in just a minute. But I want to, give, I want to, I want to draw out four things from Paul here, okay? So we're, we're trying to answer this question. How do you and I develop more self-control in our walks with Christ, all right? And, I'll, and Paul gives us four clues here. Number one, I think this works out pretty neatly in, the, in what he says. Number one, look up. Look up. The headliner here is verse 11. Pretty important. For this whole section, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Most of us have experienced momentary times where we have practiced pretty good self-control. Uh, think about whatever aspect of life, maybe exercise, maybe eating better or whatever. And we, man, we do really, really well. It's January 1st, we make a resolution or we get a kind of a bad blood work test from the doctor, whatever motivating moment it is. And we experience this time where we've got a lot of self-control, but it, it often doesn't last, right? And it's probably, there are probably a lot of factors involved in that. But I know when it comes to Christianity, sometimes we turn over a new leaf, we make some sort of commitment, make a resolution, this, I'm going to be better in this, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to do this every day, and it doesn't last. Here's, here's where we need to start when, when we talk about self-control. At the risk of oversimplifying this, I know it's a complicated thing. But Paul says it starts with God's grace. It starts with the grace of God. Notice what he says. 
he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Okay, listen to this just for a second. That word train in the Greek text is a word that in the Greek world encompassed a whole system of education. So it's not, it's not just the grace of God teaches us, though it does that, but the grace of God creates an environment, a learning environment where you grow up and you can practice what I'm telling you to practice, what Paul is telling us here. See that this is, this is important. The whole schoolroom is called grace. <coughs> I hope you'll keep that image in mind next Thursday afternoon when you're tempted to do the thing. Okay? That you'll remember the image that Paul is painting for us here. And it is, a, it is an image called grace. The grace of God creates a learning environment. This word is a powerful word. It creates this, this schoolroom, this, this environment in which you grow up and you experience what it is that God wants you to experience. And it's called grace. I want to talk about grace. We're not going to stop with grace. We're going to come back to grace. But we ought to start with it, certainly, because... If you don't experience, if you don't really believe in the grace of God, you're going to have a hard time with, with self-discipline, self-control. You cannot white-knuckle it, you know. I mean, you might for a little while. It's not going to last, though. And if, if your experience of Christianity is, is strictly a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, of all, all and it's more don'ts than do's sometimes, all right? You got this whole list of things, and you think, I, I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I can't do that. If Christianity for that is, for you is that, that it's just, it's just all these things, uh, divorced from the experience of God's grace, then you're not going to do it. You're not going to make it. I can, I can almost promise you, you're not going to make it. The schoolroom is called grace. It has created this environment for us to learn that this is how we ought to live, but it is, it's, 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 all about, it's all about the grace of God. It's unmerited favor. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. And I appreciate, um, I appreciate the prayer we had a, a minute ago. I can't remember the exact wording of it, but um, God's grace is there even when you don't practice self-control. I hope that gives you some hope and confidence this morning. Your salvation isn't contingent on your scoring a 70% or higher on the self-control test. It's not the way it works. That does not mean self-control doesn't matter, but what it means is that the schoolroom called grace leads you to lean on the grace of God so that you within yourself want to live a life that honors the grace that you've been given. So the schoolroom named grace. Look up. The grace of God has appeared. We could talk about, maybe we ought to talk about it longer. Uh, I, I don't know your background personally, uh, but, but if your concept of the grace of God, if your concept of salvation is based on this notion that God loves you when you do right and that God, God saves you when you get most everything right, if that is your notion of salvation and grace, then you're going to struggle in areas of self-control because the schoolroom is called grace and that is where the learning happens. That is where the growth happens. It, it, it happens within the safety and the comfort and the, the confidence in what God has done. All right, That's where, that's where this happens. 
Notice number two what he says. And Mark brought this out in his communion meditation. So you look up, you look up, and you, you remember, focus on the grace of God, all right? Just let this be a constant thing that you do daily, moment by moment. You thank God for how awesome His grace is that it was poured out on you in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it or can never earn it, you know? Grace of God has appeared, training, uh, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God cares what you do now. But then this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You look ahead and you wait. <clears throat> Self-control. You gotta, as Christians, we develop this ability to focus on this environment God has given us called grace. We remember that we've got to live in the present age, and so we deal, we live in the messiness of trying not to commit the sin of lust, or trying not to commit the sin of gluttony, or trying not to gossip, and trying not to do those things that bring dishonor to the name of God. We've got to live in the present age, right? But, but notice what Paul does here. He says, in this learning environment called grace, we, we live in the moment. We cannot escape that. We don't, as Christians, we don't... You know, we don't live in a different world. We live in the same old messed up place. You know, you are who you are. And you've, talking about Bible class this morning, you're a product of your experiences and those experiences that brought about good and bad in your life. And you've got your own unique set of temptations you've got to deal with from now until the Lord comes back. But there's a sense in which, though we live in the moment we look forward to, we keep our eyes peeled out for that day. We don't escape. We don't live according to this escapist kind of principle. We live in the moment. We live in the present age. But he says we wait. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to read you what I think in many ways is a parallel passage, one of my favorites, Hebrews 12. This will be familiar to many of you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where the writer says, we're talking about, well, let me just read it. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You hear that? How in the world do I get rid of that sin that clings so closely? It is an ever-present temptation, every waking moment almost, it seems. I'm struggling with that thing. It clings to me like a garment, you know. It is so close. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. All right, I want to do that. And I want to do that. Looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, I think what he's saying there is, I want to get rid of that Sin that clings so closely. Man, I want to get rid of that. But i got to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. 
on that blessed hope on that day when the clouds are going to part. And I look up there, we look up there, and we see the beautiful face of the one who died. That there a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to appear in his glory. He, the, the writer there in Hebrews 12 says that's what kept Jesus going. For the joy that was set before him, he took every step that brought him a little bit closer to Calvary because he could see on the other side of the cross. And there's a sense in which if we're going to live self-controlled lives in this present age, we keep an eye peeled out for that day when he's going to come back. We look ahead to the other side of this struggle. One of the things about Dr. Michel's study on, studies on self-control was an interesting thing, and it helped him in his own struggle against smoking. And, um, and, it, and he applied it in, in different contexts. But, but, he, but he uses this idea, and he's, I don't know anything about his faith perspective, only what he has said, a little bit about what he said and written on this particular thing. I'm guessing he's coming at this purely from a psychological, scientific perspective. But he says that one of the greatest techniques, psychological techniques of self-control is reframing, you know. And he, and he says, he studied these kids, these five-year-old kids, and they, they instinctively, the ones who succeeded, they instinctively did some things. One is, and, and you can, I think you can go and you can watch some videos of these kids. One of the things they would do is they would cover up their eyes. You see a five-year-old, you know, he's got a, I don't know, whatever. Uh, you know, he's got a, some sweet tarts on the table there. And he, he'll, the five-year-old will cover up his eyes, you know, and not look at them. He's reframing. Or he said some of the kids would, would, um, would pretend this is particularly one of the things that some kids would do. They would pretend that the marshmallow wasn't a marshmallow. It was a cloud. So it's not edible. You don't eat clouds. But they try these different metal, mental techniques, you know, to get, to get beyond it. And I thought, well, that's, that's got a very, very real spiritual application here. We, in our struggles with self-control, have to reframe. And one of the ways that we reframe is we see the thing for what it is. See, sin is so hard because Satan presents, presents it to us in this, in this way that makes it so great, seems so great and wonderful, it's going to bring me happiness and whatever. All these promises that he's, he's lying through his teeth, you know. False promises, they're lies, but man, we believe them in the moment. But we have to reframe and we see that thing for what it is over against the scope of eternity. We see that over against the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in glory. We look forward to that moment. So in the present age, we think about the other age. We reframe, you know. We look ahead and we wait for that blessed hope. This one's closely related to that and also parallels Hebrews 12. We look back. This is, do you notice that in the text, Titus 2? Titus 2, what verse is it? He says, verse, uh, verse 12, 13, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. So there's a sense in which we look back, we, we look up and we see, man, the grace that God has given me from heaven above, you know. We look ahead and we see that moment. We look back and we see Jesus hanging on the cross. And, and that's what the Hebrews writer said there in, uh, in Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, how do I, how do I you know, get rid of that closely, 
that, that sin that clings so closely. How do I do that? I look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I, I go to the cross. You know, we're obviously talking about this in a Christian setting, in a Christian context, and we're, we're talking about self-control, about things, that, things that, that affect our walk with Christ. We're talking about sin stuff, important stuff. And, and when we can see the thing for what it is, not what Satan wants us to think it is, when we can see that it is the thing that put Jesus on the cross, it is the thing. Not the, your neighbor's whatever bad sin he or she commits, that, that's a cop-out, you know, for me and you to do, right? Instead of focusing on other folks, my own struggle with gossip or pornography or lust or anger or um, hatred or whatever, whatever, I don't know. My struggle with that thing is why Jesus hung on the cross. So we look back. So you've got to reframe. We, gotta, we gotta, can't, look, can't look at the thing for what Satan wants you to think it is. You've got to look at it for what it is. And it's ugly and it's twisted and it is, it's deforming. It, it's distorting. It's, man, it's bad. And that's, that's hard to do, you know. Man, just this fruit on the tree, it'll make you wise. It'll make you like God. It'll, it'll give you everything that you want. Just eat, you know, just take a little taste. We look up, we see God's grace. We look ahead and we see that beautiful day when he's going to come back. We look back and we see Jesus on the cross. And we look, we look within. Here's number four. We look within. See, there is a, there's a responsibility here. There, there's um. There's a, there's a thing about, about Christianity. It is, it is not just about being passive recipients of God's grace. And so I want to go back to where we started a few minutes ago, and that is renounce and live. You and I have a responsibility here. We live in this world called grace. We anticipate the day when He comes back. We look back to the day when He died. But we also look within and we recognize that we individually, we have a personal responsibility when it comes to the sin struggle. Cannot blame other people. Don't blame situations. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame your culture, right? Don't blame your genetics. All these things have an influence on us, right? But Paul says, you... Very personal thing. You renounce, you renounce ungodliness, and you live self-controlled lives. We're connected. We are vines connected to the branch. We are living in this schoolhouse called grace. And we, within that context, we ourselves, as human beings created in God's image with free will, we have the ability, by the grace of God, to make choices that are right. A passage I mentioned earlier, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. That's a very important passage. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, culminating in, in uh, self-control. It is something the Spirit does within people who are attached to Jesus. That's what happens. 
But you and I submit to the Spirit of God. We can, other passages teach us, we can quench the Spirit, we can resist the Spirit, or we can live within the Spirit's control. And that's what Paul is saying in Galatians 5. Self-control. Two questions. Do you need more self-control? Yes. Number two. What area of your life do you need it the most in your relationship to Jesus? In what area of your life would it make the biggest difference for you personally if you were able to exhibit what God has called us to, to exhibit in the area of self-control? What I, what I want to ask you to do, just as a practical thing, is to leave home, leave here today and go home sometime today before you go to bed tonight is to pray about this, talk to the Lord about it, and just lay that thing before him, whatever it is. Just, just put it out there. He already knows about it. Be honest about it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't blame it on anybody else. Just put it out there in front of God and say, Lord, I need your help to deal with this. I, I want to be self-controlled, but I haven't done a great job of it. Help me, to, help me to, to live, to learn in this environment called grace. Help me truly to rest on your grace. Help me to anticipate so in a, such a real way, what it's going to be like in that new heaven and earth when, when the Lord comes and makes everything right. You know, help, help me to, to look back and truly, truly in, in some sense, to, to, to experience that, that, that suffering that Jesus experienced because of my sin and help, help me to be self-disciplined, you know. That's the product. That's what comes out of these, these kind of habits that we develop as Christians. So take that to the Lord and pray about it. And then get up tomorrow morning and do it again. And, and do it Tuesday morning and, and just make it a habit where you learn to look and reframe this temptation in your life in a way where you're submitting that to the grace of God and to the Spirit's leading in your life and see if you persist in this what God might do. If you're not a Christian this, this morning, uh, we're, we're here today, as Steve prayed a few minutes ago, we're here in part at least to give everybody an opportunity to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that, if you have not submitted your life to Jesus, um, you can do it today. It means submitting everything. It's not a half-hearted thing. It's not just submitting your Sunday self. It's submitting your life to him and uh, putting him on in baptism, putting Jesus on in baptism as you, you, you turn away from your past, you confess your faith in Christ, and you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who then produces Love, joy, peace, patience, and long-suffering and self-control in your life. We invite you to make that confession today. Or maybe you need to come back today and uh, once again renew your, renew your relationship with Christ. Let's stand. Let's sing. If you need to respond, please, please come now.